Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. Recently, there's been no shortage of policy news. President Biden signed a sweeping executive order on competition, Americans are facing inflation, and Congress is wheeling and dealing to get an infrastructure package passed before members head home for August recess. Today on the AAF Exchange, we are joined by Douglas Holtzaken to discuss all of this. Doug, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. How have you been the last couple of weeks? Uh, Living the dream. No problems at all. Appreciate it. Perfect. So let's jump right into things we have a lot to talk about. Let's start our discussion with the recent infrastructure slash $3.5 trillion budget deal that was announced earlier this week. Before you dive into specifics, could you give listeners a brief uh, explanation about the need for the dual track approach and also your best guess on the timing of these things. So in the campaign, the president had something called the Build Back Better plan, and it was a a very large tax increase, about $3.6 trillion, which was used to finance in part uh, a lot of infrastructure spending plus a big uh, expansion of the social safety nets. Um, And when he came into office, that was the, the policy platform. The administration broke that into two pieces. One they called the American Jobs Plan, and that was infrastructure plus some stuff that other people didn't really think was infrastructure, like a Medicaid expansion, and the American Family Plan, which is pretty unambiguously the big expansion of the social safety net and a lot of tax increases. Republicans have no particular appetite for the the American Family Plan. And so there was never going to be a track where in regular order you got 60 votes in the Senate for those particular items. So that track is being done exclusively with Democratic votes, which means they're going to have to get budget resolutions and get reconciliation instructions and have the ability to get fast track protections in the Senate to get it done. The infrastructure piece, once they pared out the things that Republicans did not think were were infrastructure, they found a core of about 10 um, Republican and Democratic senators willing to try to cut a deal for a, quote, infrastructure bill that would um, spend about $600 billion on, on infrastructure items and be fully paid for. The pay for have been a contentious uh, item and still not clear how that happens. Would be fully paid for and, and would go through the Senate in regular order. Uh, so that's been going on. Uh, the bill does not yet exist, uh, although they're drafting like mad and, and we get daily reports that they're close and any day now. And, and it was just reported today, so this is Thursday, that Next week, the Senate will hold a vote on a motion to proceed to the bill. So that's a a procedural thing that uh, ends the debate and takes them to to sort of the point where they might actually get a a vote. We'll see um, if all that happens. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the Senate budget deal and, you know, break it down a little further. This is the three point five trillion dollar spending agreement that we heard from Senate budget Democrats earlier this week. Let's start on the spending side. What's likely to be included in this package? What are the big ticket items? So remember, this what they're talking about is an agreement on how to um, uh, write down a budget resolution that the Senate uh, could could pass and then go over to the House and pass. And they need the budget resolution so they can do the reconciliation bill. The reconciliation bill actually contains policy items. The deal they've cut is just for uh, we're going to have so much in the way of spending, so much in the way of tax cuts, so much in the way of tax increases. 
they know in their heads what's underneath that, but we're not going to see those details even if they vote on this uh, in the near future. But, um, you know, we know what the big ticket items are. Uh, they want to have a child tax credit, which is quite generous. Uh, it's it's $3,000 per child, uh, $3,600 uh, if they're under six. And so that's a, a lot. It goes to something like 90% of uh, parents in the United States. And if it were made uh, permanent over a 10-year period, it would cost about $1.6 all by itself. So that will exist for some period, right? Because they're going to have a total of $3.5 trillion in spending increases and tax credit decreases. That's that's what they're trying to, to, to cover. Well, you know, some piece of that is going to be the, the child credit. They said they're going to have um, an expansion of Medicare uh, benefits, uh, uh, vision, dental coverage, things that aren't uh, in the, the traditional Medicare plan. Uh, how generous those are, how long they last, again, don't know, but that's that's a piece of it. You're going to have uh, Affordable Care Act subsidies uh, that, that are uh, happening for a longer period of time. You're going to have earned income tax credit expansions. You're going to have um, child care, paid family leave, uh, all sorts of pieces of a social segment that's much more expansive, and it's going to cost a fair amount of money. Hmm. What about on the tax side? I mean, in all the news reports that I've read, all what you've seen on TV, Senate Democrats claim that everything in their budget agreement uh, will be paid for. How do Democrats propose paying for all this new spending? And do the numbers in your mind, will they add up? Um, well, the best single place to go for that is the president's budget, which had all nearly all of this in it and had $3.6 trillion in tax increases over the next 10 years. So there are proposals out there that, that would add up to the 3.5, no question about it. Uh, the president's budget did not include some prescription drug policies that would uh, reduce uh, spending by a, a lot. CBO scored it at a little under $500 billion uh, last time, and I've seen news reports that they'll get up to $600 billion out of that. So that's another pool of, of savings they can use to pay for this stuff. And Gordon Gray wrote a, a nice uh, description of all this that, that's on the AF website. I, I encourage you to go there. It's much more readable than the president's budget, but th this is really just, um, you know, take the administration's plan uh, and, and turn it into legislation. Yeah, and of course, we'll provide the link to the piece in the in the notes for this. You know, you've noted a couple of times in this podcast that the Senate Democrats' budget agreement is just the first step towards a Democratic reconciliation package, which, of course, circumvents the need for 60 votes, the Senate filibuster, if you will. But this is far from a slam dunk, right? I mean, there are still a lot of moderate Democrats out there. We're getting close to the August recess, so there is a time limit on this. How likely is it that this budget agreement will pass Congress with only Democratic votes? I think they can probably get the budget resolution through because the resolution doesn't have specific policies. So you're not actually voting for a $3.6 trillion tax hike, for example. You're, you're voting for the capacity to consider a bill that has that in it. Uh, so I think they can get that done. Um, it's tough. I mean, they can't lose any votes in the Senate and they can lose three or four in the House. So uh, you, you, it's, you have to really work hard to get consensus. Um, the second piece of that, which is passing the reconciliation bill, um, they they have to, to, to really, really work hard because it's going to be hard to, to not lose votes on some of the really large tax increases they're proposing. Gotcha. How does this announcement of uh, a budget deal affect the uh, $1.2 trillion uh, bipartisan infrastructure agreement announced several weeks ago? 
Uh, different uh, political geniuses read it differently. I, 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 in principle, uh, they they exist separately, and so who cares, right? Like, shouldn't matter. But that, we know that's not really true because the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, has said she will not consider any bill that comes over from the Senate, the infrastructure bill in particular, uh, unless she's got the reconciliation uh, bill passed. So she's, she has said plainly and never retracted her, her intention to hold that thing hostage to getting this uh, a big increase in the social welfare um, uh, safety net. And, and, and that means that the, that bill is really going nowhere, even if they get it through the Senate in the near, in the near future. So I, I think it's on balance. It hurts the chances of that bill ever uh, getting done. You know, Republicans are going to look at that budget agreement and say, geez, they're spending $3.5 trillion already. Uh, are we really going to add this other stuff on? It's too much spending. Let's let's just not do it. Why are we helping them out with this? Things like that. And and they'll, they'll just have trouble getting enough Republican votes to get to 60. Mm-hmm. All right. So basically, we got a long we got a long way to go to see. We'll, we'll probably be talking about this once we get the details again. Short hands on this. I mean, short hands, real simple. The following has happened. The administration basically said to Congress, you can pass the HEROES Act, which was something they tried to do in 2020 a couple of times. They relabeled it the American Rescue Plan. They stuck in a couple of things that, that the administration wanted, and that sailed through early. The price of that is we have to pass my Build Back Better plan. And they have been trying to do that ever since. I don't see any way that we get to the end of 2021 and the newly elected president doesn't get something out of his campaign platform. Like Democrats just can't let that happen. Mm-hmm. So I think in the end, a reconciliation bill passes. The only question is, how big is it and what's in it? And it's not the first um, uh, try. I bet they're going to negotiate for a while. <laughs> so we'll have to wait and see. Let's turn to another big story from this past week, and that's uh, President Biden's sweeping executive order on competition. Um, and yet another colorful daily dish that you wrote. You said it It has the feel of an elementary school science fair with no theme and exhibits of widely varying quality. Uh, what are the highlights of this executive order from your perspective? Well, I mean, you know, the reason I said that is there's some things that are just like almost laughable to me. Like, you know, I'm going to direct the, the Department of Health and Human Services to in 45 days come up with a, a plan to lower prescription drug prices and stop gouging. Like We've only been at this for years. Like, what are they going to do in the next 45 days that they can do administratively without legislation? So, you know, that, that I view as a relatively low quality executive order. Uh, there are some, I think, which are depressing, right? So there's a call for the FCC to reinstate the so-called net neutrality rules, the, the regulation of the internet under Title II of the Communications Act. That's um, troubling on the substance because I, I don't think that's the right way to regulate the, the Internet. It's also been true that every time they have tried to do something about regulating the Internet, the courts have said they don't have the authority to do it. Nothing has changed on that front. And so you need Congress to pass new law that gives the FCC the authority to regulate the Internet in a way that people want. And and so it's it's kind of depressing that they would go back to this well one more time, knowing that it's, it's in the end a dead end. And so we have that. We have some things that actually a lot of people think um, are important. Um, uh, There's been increasing attention across the ideological spectrum to the idea that occupational licensing is a barrier to entry and and hurts uh, our labor market dynamics. So, you know, you need 2000 hours to be a hair braider 
uh, or, or uh, you know, a thousand hours to become a fortune teller, isn't that really just kind of a way to stop people from competing with the hair braiders and the fortune tellers and, and as a result, raising their prices? And, and, and the answer is probably yes. Um, so, you know, tell the Federal Trade Commission to get rid of uh, unnecessary occupational licensing. Similarly, get rid of non-compete clauses where uh, I preclude you from going to do digital work for any other think tank for the next five years. And when I sign you, I didn't do that. It was an oversight, but, you know, we could have done that. Um, the, the, evidently, a, a, a large fraction of the labor force is affected by non-compete con uh, contracts. I've heard numbers as high as 50 percent. So um, those seem like good ideas. There's a real question is whether the FTC has the authority again to do that. But most of these are state level um, licenses. So I, I don't know if much will come of it. But, you know, there, there's that. And then there's some things that um, I think are large and very troubling. And, and, and the biggest of those is the, the notion that they are going to, A, change the standards by which competition is judged, in particular mergers and acquisitions, and go away from uh, a reliance on what's known as the consumer welfare standard. So you, you look at the proposed merger or acquisition and you, you say, does this harm the consumers in, in the market? So you have to identify the market, identify the competitors, see what happens to the nature of the competition, see what happens to prices and, and qualities and varieties, and make a judgment. And so it's a very disciplined approach to, to thinking about those issues. Here, they're, they're going to say, we don't need to do that. We can just look at sort of bad conduct or you're, you're, big enough, you're big enough to be a monopoly and so we want you to be smaller. And a bunch of sort of fairly arbitrary criteria that can lead to contradictory decisions across cases and uncertainty about how the world works. And worse, they're going to take those standards and look back at old mergers and acquisitions and perhaps unwind some that they think are inappropriate using the new criteria. They, I think that's a horrifically bad idea, to be to be honest about it. And um, uh, it's the kind of thing that really chills the the incentives in the private sector to, to put together efficient businesses and provide innovative new business models and products. Yeah, yeah, that was one of the that was one of the ones you picked up on on your Daily Dish on Tuesday, I think it was, where uh, the possibility of the administration re-examining mergers that were approved during previous administrations. What is animating that push? I mean, is it just that they don't like big, big tech, big whatever? Well, I mean, there, there's uh, the, yes, they don't like big tech. Um, you know, we 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 know that, for example, the the chair over at the um, uh, over at the FTC has a long history of writing uh, articles about big tech that suggest that they have, you know, they are monopolies. They have um, they have broken the law in their behavior already. I mean, she, she came in uh, with that that predisposition. And so that there's there's little question about that. There have been some conjectures, I guess the right way to say it, that, that really it wasn't fair for Facebook to acquire Instagram. For example, that's just a way to stop them from competing with Facebook. Same is true with WhatsApp. They grab that. And so they're, they're, these mergers and acquisitions are, are buying up potential competitors and chilling competition. So I think that's what leads them to think they want to unwind that. Of course, we don't know the alternate history where Instagram tries to go it alone and, and does it really turn out to be what it is when it's done in conjunction with Facebook. I don't know. Yeah. To be fair, that some of the executive order does have merit. You already mentioned uh, the occupational light licensing. Was there any other ones in there that you thought that might you know, have merit? Well, I mean, there's some where we, we just don't know. So there's a uh, there's a proposal for like a, a really niche proposal on railroads, which somehow ended up in this executive order as well. 
it's been under consideration by the Surface Transportation Board. And the issue there is if, if you've got a shipper, like you've got a warehouse and only one line goes to it, you got to ship on that line. Well, you could have another railroad that was cheaper. And so you, you put it on the first line for only as long as you have to, and then you switch to the cheaper railroad. Now, you can do that in the contract already, right? You can you can say, look, I'm willing to ship with you, but you got to you got to transfer it to line number two, and I have a contract with them for the remainder of the shipping, and and that's that goes on. Um, nothing to stop that. This would force that to happen, like in in every instance, it would have to be uh, it have to be switched. It's not obvious that's a good idea. It's also not obvious it's a bad idea. It's not obvious where that lands. So they need to, to actually do due diligence and figure out how much. What is the consumer welfare implications of that? That's the right way to think about that. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think they needed the executive order. They already had this under their way. So we'll see. Interesting. There's another point in all of this that you made in your in your dish um, and that also AAF Stan Bosch has already made. He recently wrote about how the executive order erodes the autonomy of these independent agencies. Um, what is happening here and why why is it a concern? So uh, think about the, the FTC. Uh, that's an independent agency. Uh, independent agencies should uh, decide for themselves what their policies will be and, and what they'll they'll pursue. The executive order uh, tells the FTC to go get rid of unnecessary occupational licensing. So that's demanding an outcome of the agency. Well, that means you've set the policy, not the independent agency. And it's a stronger executive order than previous presidents. You know, other presidents, Obama, Bush, uh, uh, Clinton, it would have been We'd like the FTC to study occupational licensing. Yeah, so just go take a look. And if you decide something needs to be done, then you can do that. Or, or we'd ask them to investigate some other issue. But they never gave a directive on the outcome. Um, to do that, it further undermines um, the independence of these agencies. I'll just note for the record, there is a line of thinking, um, which I know about because I got angry phone calls from that Daily Dish, that, that says there, there should be no independent agencies, that the president should control all agencies and control them completely. They're part of the executive branch, that's that. Um, and so they don't mind this independence being eroded. But my view is Congress set up the independence, a president signed it, it was perceived to be in the national interest to have an independent agency, then undercutting it goes against that, that uh, basic decision. Yeah, yeah, it's part of like that broader theme that's happening. Where you know, you've, we've mentioned that independent agency heads are now being able to be replaced in a lot of circumstances. So it's part of that whole broader erosion in what you've noted in the past. Yeah, we've seen the CFPB, the the FHFA, and and now the Social Security Administration um, have the leadership removed by the president. So it, the world is changing. There's no question. Let's turn to our final topic. Um, one of the hot button issue, another hot button issue. Um, I think Fed Chair is. Is, is testifying on this today. So let's turn to inflation and the state of the economy. This week, we learned uh, that consumer prices increased the most in 13 years in June. Start by walking us through that report. What did we learn? So top line prices are up 5.4% uh, uh, from a year earlier, um, stripping out the notoriously volatile food and energy sector to look at the core. They're up 4.5%. Uh, for the month of June, they were up 0.9% in either case. 0.9% extrapolated for a full year is 11.3% inflation. So whether you look at it over the course of the past year or just recently, there is no question inflation has ramped up. Right? So now the question is, how much does it ramp up and how long does it last? Um, the Fed is quick at, to point out that there's a lot of one-time things going on and 
and special uh, features that come from the pandemic. And they're right, right? In this report, in one month, used cars and trucks rose 10.4%, the highest on record. Th that's not going to continue. And that's that's responsible for a third of the, the increase in June. So you, you want to take out some of these special one-time things that come from these supply chain problems and and uh, recovery from the pandemic and sort of look at the underlying trends. And, and, and I think if you do that, you should still have some concern because we've seen the core of, this, of the consumer price index, the CPI, the shelter component of that is one third of the typical family's budget. And, and it rose um, uh, to a, a monthly rate of 0.6%. So you're looking at something that's well over 7% annually on the most important part of the budget. And so we've got some, some pieces of inflation that aren't one time that are unlikely to just jump up and down. That good. The, the shelter component doesn't bounce around a lot. And, and we know that the housing market's very hot. Rental prices are, are up uh, a lot across the country. That's a concern. And so will it last five years? That's that's the wild card, right? How, how persistent will this be? Uh, if it appears to persist, the Fed has said, and Powell testified, he will have to raise rates to fight it. And that's that. They, if they see that happening, they will. But for the moment, they believe it's going to be uh, it's relatively temporary and will abate later this year and into next year and, and we'll be fine. Interesting. You, I mean, you've already started talking about a few of the sectors, but in your dish on the inflation, you looked at rising prices in a few specific sectors of the economy. What else did you find? What else concerns you here? One of the things you find is if you actually look at the energy sector, gasoline prices get all the attention all the time. No question. Remember that basically a year ago, global oil prices went negative. And so to go from negative numbers to positive numbers is a big inflation. And so the underlying raw material for gasoline has gone up a lot. And we've seen staggering uh, gasoline price inflation over the, over the past year. Um, I forget the exact numbers, the charts we're taking a look at. Um, so, you, you know, you see that. And that's, that's an important piece of what's going on out there. But again, I think if you strip out the, the kinds of things where, you know, we saw the service sector dead in the water and so... When finally people get back on airplanes, ticket prices go up, finally go to hotels, hotel rooms become expensive again. And all that is going on. Um, but that that's one time stuff. It's it's the broad increase in the producer price index, right? The inputs into consumer prices, they continue to go up. We've got a report on that uh, this month as well. Big increase there, 7% annual inflation. So we've got the pipeline pretty full and, and we have some concerns about the durability of this in my view. Yeah. So is it just the pandemic? What else is driving this increase in inflation? We have extraordinarily easy monetary policy, right? We are we have rates at zero and they are pumping cash into the economy. So literally printing money and handing it out at, at, at a large pace. And so that's that's a lot of money chasing uh, relatively few goods and services. We got inflation in goods because for a while we couldn't buy any services. That was pr prior to the vaccinations. And so having failed for 10 years to get goods price inflation, all it took was a pandemic that said you can't buy any services because you can't go out. And people bought a lot of goods and we, and we had goods price inflation. I mean, that's all there is to it. Now we're getting some services inflation. So that, that that's happening out of just easy monetary policy and the conditions. And then there's the American Rescue Plan. This is $2 trillion. We, we gave it to individuals. Uh, a lot of it came quickly in checks. They couldn't go spend it all. So the first thing we saw was asset price inflation. They took the money and they stuck it in the bank. The rate of return on the bank is essentially zero. So they, they got themselves a Robinhood app and went and bought some stocks or they plowed it into the down payment on a house. And we've seen house price inflation go up. We've seen a lot of people speculating in oil futures because the oil market is coming back. And so 
you know, we've seen this, this asset price inflation. Now people are able to actually spend on services. And so they're, they're sort of maybe selling off some of that stuff and going out and buying services. We're seeing the pressure up on the prices there. So we're seeing it on all sides. And it's from the fact that we have overstimulus on the fiscal front and um, very easy monetary policy. And, and it's a recipe for inflation. So let's take it back to the first first thing we talked about today. Congress has already spent trillions in response to the pandemic, as you just noted. And yep. now we have congressional Democrats are proposing $3.5 trillion more. What is the impact of such a large spending package beyond inflation in the economy? So, again, that $3.5 trillion is, is not pro-growth infrastructure. That's big increases in, in the social safety net. That's a fancy way of saying we're going to give you cash for things, right? You can, you, here's some cash. Called over child credit, you're going to go spend it on stuff. Uh, we're going to give you uh, cash, which is subsidies on health insurance. Well, that means you don't have to use other money you have on health insurance. You can spend that on stuff. Um, we're going to subsidize the child care. Well, that that bill just went down. We'll spend it somewhere else. This is if this is the more this is front loaded, the more it it, it builds on the overstimulus that is in place and, and continues that fundamentally inflationary trend in the economy. Uh, over the longer term. You, you're either going to have to raise a lot of taxes to, to, to cover that, which is going to be bad for growth in the economy. And, and if you're not growing you know, the capital, labor, supply in the economy, you have a lot of demand facing less supply. That's, that's not a good situation. And um, so I, I think that that is a fundamentally anti-growth and a front-loaded pro-inflation uh, step for, for the economy. What about policymakers? How should they react to increases in consumer prices? This is they, they they should do no harm. So no more American rescue plans that that was not wasn't needed at the time would have flunked on the merits. Uh, don't do it again, certainly. And then uh, you leave it to the Fed. I mean, the, the Fed is positioned to unwind the the sort of the purchases of treasuries and mortgage backed securities that, that pump cash into the economy. They that's step number one. Step number two is they can start raising rates and and, and dim the, the demand and as a result, lower the inflationary pressures and, and they should do that. And it's better if they leave it to the Fed so they don't have to coordinate act actions and off we go. Interesting. Well, we'll have to keep an eye on all of this. Doug, thanks for joining us today sure. and unpacking all of these, uh, these issues. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.